Hello, I'm Rabbi Iggy, and welcome to Tattoo the Torah. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tattoos and Torah. Uh, thank you for joining us. I'm Rabbi Iggy out of the Chuva Center. And for our guest today, we have a very interesting person who uh, just published a book, which is uh, quite fascinating, The Lower Manhattan Dormitory Effect, uh, which is out on Amazon, uh, George Haas. Um, and the book is a recollection of downtown life in New York in the late 70s and early 80s, um, reflected um, from where he is right now, which is in L.A., into 2020 L.A. Um, it is a memoriam for his younger brother, right, Raul Kevin, and for the young women and men who died from AIDS, from suicide, from heroin, from sex. Um, some of the photographic work in this book uh, that's included in the 2017 MoMA exhibition, Club 57, film performance and art uh, in the East Village, 1978 to 1983, along with the films from this period, the Lower Manhattan Dormitory Effect is a description of the downtown art scene, which at the time commingled with a vibrant, a vibrant club scene uh, where he was a famous doorman, uh, uh, sober, so that he can remember what he saw. Uh, it is gay. It is dyslexic. It is a portrait of a time in photographs of a group of creative friends, most of whom did not survive that period. Uh, it is a portrait of young men recovering from childhood sadistic abuse, a childhood that, uh, an adolescence of drug and alcohol addiction, and from dissociative identity disorder. It is intended to be irreverent, to be funny. Uh, to be infused with Buddhist philosophy, to be beautiful, to be an exact depiction of then from now. Uh, the Buddhist part, which is fascinating because really what um, what I find uh, amazing about George uh, is his work with Metagroup um, because uh, he moved to Los Angeles from New York uh, to work in the film and photography industry in 92 um, where he started practicing Vipassana. Uh, at uh, Ordinary Dharma in Venice, and then studying Buddhist texts extensively. Uh, then he began to study with his current teacher, with, with his current teacher, right, Shinzen Young, at Vipassana Support International, where he is now a senior facilitator. Uh, he began teaching meditation in 2000s, founded Metagroup in 2003, and became a an empowered teacher through uh, Against the Stream Buddhism Meditation Society where he taught from 2007 to 2016. Um, along with his daily morning meditation and full schedule uh, of one-on-one students, he continues to teach weekly classes and intensive in Los Angeles and offer day-long weekend and extended retreats around the country. Uh, he also is, of course, an artist, as we said, um, and his work is in permanent collection at the Hammy Museum, Library of Congress, MoMA, and the American Irish Historical Society, to say the least. So if there's anybody who really embodies the tattoos and Torah, the two different parts of a person that one can be, um, lest you think otherwise, you can be a rather successful and published photographer artist and also being one of the premier leading Buddhist thought uh, facilitators in, in the country, if not the world. Uh, welcome, George Haas. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. I, I like to say I'm an autodidact. 
So. Ooh, is that right? For those people who don't know, right? he's, he's self-taught. Right. It's uh, being dyslexic the way that I am. My, my, the way that I learn is so convoluted. It doesn't work that well in conventional settings. So uh, the, that process of learning uh, has, has uh, had to take its shape in different ways. I mean, so that's really a good place to start, I think, for this particular conversation. That is, um, in many ways, right, I, I I don't think there is a particular way of learning, right? So, like, my, my daughter is also dyslexic and has a severe learning disorder, and she goes to a special school for that. Um, and I was a teacher, right? I am a teacher. So there's people within my classroom at large that are not you know, regular learners or whatever it is, right? Does anybody really learn the way you are supposed to learn, right? <laughs> well, I think it's a kind of bell curve, right? Right. And a lot of people are in the middle. One end is the dyslexic end and the other end is the autistic end. Um, and it really has to do with the way that your brain is structured. And and so you, you have to adapt to the way that you are and then make the best of it, uh, which we all have to do when we're learning. But if you if you fall into that main part of the bell curve, then the systems that are set up are more practical for you than they are if you're sort of at the, I'm sort of at the extreme end of the dyslexic curve. So it's just, you know, it's a, as I say, it, everything takes me three times longer, right? So it does tend to produce a deeper understanding because I have to read everything three right. times in order for it to make sense. <laughs> are there things that are coming to you easier because of that? Well, what happens, and I, when I figured this part out, I really just uh, enjoy it a whole lot. Um, because the, the way that the dyslexic mind works, you can string together these ideas that other people just don't even associate because your mind can see the associations. And so you can string together these, these sort of wild conceptions of things that other people don't see. But if you, you can explain the steps that got you there, that it can begin to make sense to them. So in terms of my own work, one of the reasons why um, I've been able to use the attachment material from Western psychology and put it into a, a Buddhist meditation framework is because I could see these connections uh, in a way that w weren't necessarily obvious to other people. So, in that this in that in that essence, right, the dyslexia is is a kind of a gift, right? It allows you to have a creativity, perhaps that some people do not. Well, it creates a unique perspective, and okay. um, I, I think it would have been more useful to me earlier in life if that had been appreciated anywhere. <laughs> Later in life, when I sort of got onto this, oh, this is really useful and interesting and, and fascinates me. Uh, and then that I could really begin to celebrate that, that unique perspective. Everybody has one, right? You have your perspective, which is based on your conditioning. And uh, obviously we live in a society where some things are given more value than others. Uh, dyslexia wasn't necessarily one of the high value targets out there, but it does create this very interesting way of seeing and understanding the world. And then if you can get good at communicating how you get there, then you can bring other people along with you and they can see the value of it that they might not natively be able to see without your uh, walking them there. That, that's, that sounds so... And I say this in a good way, but that sounds so teachery, 
right? That sounds so like, right? So like, right here I am, I struggle with this thing and now I understand it better. And now that as I'm looking at you, my students, you, the world, like all of a sudden be like, oh, this is something I, I can use to better teach, better understand. Right. So, it, you know, it does create a, a sense of compassion for the student and, and the way that the student learns because uh, of my own experience being taught and the, the, the bandwidth of the teacher being exceeded by my uh, convoluted way of learning. <laughs> so do people say to you, probably like, say to me, is like, uh, what? They, like, you'll, I'll say something or an idea and they're like, uh, you're going to have to walk me through this. I don't. <laughs> I understand. The, I understand the beginning point and the end point, but the middle right. seems to be. So well, I like to teach uh, equanimity with confusion. That, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Listen to me. It, it, you know, epistemic trust means that you believe that the person is telling you the truth and that you believe that while the, what they're telling you is meant to be helpful to you. So it's a, establishing that relationship with the teacher and then allowing them to teach you, even if in the beginning uh, you can't grasp what they're talking about. This is you know, very much true of the Dharma because if you have these sort of rigid ideas about the way things are, though the rigidity of those ideas prevent you from seeing what's being taught to you. And so part of the process is releasing the rigidity and opening to the possibility of the world being different than you initially were taught or, or have a habit of experiencing it and then opening up into uh, actually a better a better way of being and what I really mean by that is a way of suffering less uh, in, in, in the pursuit of things that have meaning to you the the first thing you say right so that's where so I it sort of strikes me, strikes me first. That is, you have to trust, right? Which is so difficult, though, right? Because like everything else, you said, but like you have to really be in a place where you're like, oh, I trust that this is good for me, and I trust the person's going to take me to a place where, that they recognize that they want what's good for me. Right. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. People who have had uh, early experiences in life where the epistemic trust was supported don't have trouble with trust. It's people whose early experience in life, the, the quality of epistemic trust was either violated or broken, have a, a, a difficulty trusting. And so what that means is, uh, in the teacher role is that you have to be absolutely ethical in the way that you relate to people so that they can begin to repair that first little stage of uh, the trust piece. One of the main differences, of course, is that when epistemic trust is broken, typically it's in adolescence as the cognitive mind is beginning to develop and you can reflect back for the first time on the conditions of your childhood and what the deals were that your caregivers made with you. And if you see that they made deals with you that were actually in their interest and against yours, that's the thing that breaks that capacity to trust people. But because it comes in early adolescence, uh, before the full cognitive mind is developed, you tend to generalize this to all people rather than just to the specific people who aren't trustworthy. And so we, really you begin again uh, by knowing that as an adult, you have much more agency than you did as a child and you're not nearly as vulnerable as you were then. And you can protect yourself in a way that you couldn't as a child. 
and so that you can give people the opportunity to prove their trustworthiness or disprove it and put more energy into people who are trustworthy and less energy into people who aren't. When you have that assumption that everybody's not trustworthy, you don't examine whether they are or not. You just have that blanket assumption, and so you don't really trust anybody. It's very difficult to move through the world uh, when you don't trust anybody, and so much easier when you do. Is is that is that at the core? I think uh, is that the core at the core you think of of sort of this wound that I think a lot of us carry with us. This 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 distrust of the world, the sort of this place where I I don't know that people really are there to support me and I don't know how to really navigate or, or even discern between those who do and those who don't because I feel that everything is uh, going well, to hurt th- me one way or the other. I think that that's a fairly extreme outcome. If, we, if I can put this into an, an attachment framework, secure people trust other people. And if you don't prove trustworthy, they, they think you're not trustworthy, but they still think everybody else is. Um, if you become dismissing uh, as an adult, then uh, you're, you don't really trust anybody. You prefer things to be more transactional. I do this for you, and I get from you what I want. And as long as they're in a position to have resources to transact what they want, they don't worry about it so much. Preoccupied people think that there's something wrong with them and that other people will be able to take care of them as long as they can get the other person to do that. But all of those people can uh, operate in a, in a place of at least limited trust in terms of what to expect. It's when you move into the extreme of disorganization that there's, ac- there's actually a, a real impairment in the capacity to trust. In the work that I do, uh, that disorganized piece is, uh, you know, there are mental health issues there and there's also addiction issues there. Uh, and... Um, because it's so difficult to operate in that place of no trust, I think you could say that reasonably. Was that your journey in terms of trying to figure out, <clears throat> right? Because from the um, bio, we know that your childhood was tumultuous, right? <laughs> to say the least, right? Well, um, one of the things I think that uh, when you talk about trauma or, or, or child abuse is a, a basic understanding of the types that happen. Um, I happen to have both types in my family system because uh, my mother and father, the way that that was formed. You have the person that's so caught up in their own suffering, so caught up in needing relief from that suffering that they'll enlist their children to help relieve them from the suffering. Um, and they're so caught up in themselves, they don't really see the impact on the children that, that their behavior is causing. So in some sense, they're oblivious to the children and they just use them as agents to relieve their own suffering. It's, that, in, in some sense, is more benign. It's, it's terribly harmful to the children, but it's less but, uh, directed than as the other kind of abuse, which is sadistic abuse. Sadistic abuse, the, the perpetrator is extremely well-focused uh, on the mind state of the, the child and is intentionally inflicting harm and in order to be able to do that, they have to be able to read the child and see what actually is causing the most harm to the child. And so it's a very different kind of uh, environment for a child to grow up in. 
So I had a father who was sadistically abusive and, and smart and good at it. And it was excruciatingly painful and frightening. And my mother was uh, also uh, subject to his abuse. And so she was in a state of sort of mindless depression most of the time and, and, uh, and just uh, took the things that she wanted to make herself feel better, oblivious really to the effect that it had on me. My father was uh, sexually abusive and sadistically sexually abusive, which is a kind, it's almost like torture. And so very early on, my main defense against that was just to dissociate. And so I ended up coming out of childhood with this ex with the most extreme end of dissociation as my main way of being in the world, which is very limiting in terms of, uh, of forming relationships or making anything uh, hap happen. I think we all come out of our childhoods and when we get into adolescence, we begin to see really what has meaning to us and value to us. And then we are inclined toward trying to get that for ourselves. And we have the skill set that we really developed in our family system that uh, allow us to engage in the world in that way. And, and uh, you know, depending on the, the conditions which are quite varied, um, you you are more or less capable of doing that. Uh, you know, I grew up in an upper middle class family, so that there was a lot of resources. And you know, we we live in a culture where uh, the public school system does not actually provide an education that exceeds the level of the education at the home. So even though my education wasn't particularly good, and I was very dyslexic, and um, and uh, even though my parents knew that I was dyslexic, they didn't provide any uh, support for that. I ended up with a higher level of education than you, than you might have anyway, because of the nature of the way our culture is. Right. Um, One thing leads to another, right? You go to, right. <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm white, so I have that privilege. Right. I have a, an upper middle class vocabulary because of the way that I grew up. And so there's a lot of opportunity that was open to me that might not be uh, open to other people are hard to get right. and at the same time i'm gay and so a lot of that what? opportunity <laughs> was not actually there what? <laughs> hilariously um so i talk about this in the book because the book is really uh, the first part of the book is this it's written in prose poetry so it's not regular prose it's sort of of extreme use of language let's put it that way um you showed them right i'm dyslexic i'm going to show you, i'm going to use all the words <laughs> well i love words and i like precise right. words and uh and uh and you know the great thing about now is um and i'll contrast that um you're reading a book and you come to a word that you don't understand and you go Okay, Google, what does this word mean? And it just tells you. It doesn't really even peed the flow of what you're reading. Right. Or if you're reading an ebook, you just click the word and the definition right. comes up. It's it's really simple. I so, never have to use the dictionary, so I don't, I don't know what I don't know what that means. What I, I one of my great friends is Jimmy McCourt, who's a writer. Um, his, his editor once said to him. Jimmy, these books are too long. You need to edit them. And his response was, my readers like every word. <laughs> That's right. That's right. 
But I used to read his book and I had my dictionary right next to me because it was just impossible to get three sentences laughing yourself to death and then having to look up the word. Uh, so. Yeah, no, it's for it's funny because for me, like when I write, I'm not a good writer, but like when when I write things, and uh, <laughs> my my editors would say, or oh, people through the past have said, like, I don't think that's a real word, or is that a real word? But and it's funny because on one hand, it feels really good because they're like, oh, Iggy is so smart, like it, it must be a word, right? So like, because like he would never use it, and I'm like, no, I just made it up. <laughs> like it's not. That's not how it is, but but I also feel like I, I have a very, in that sense, I, maybe I'm dyslexic. I don't know, but like I also, uh, I capitalize at will. Like I just like find some words that need a capital, and sometimes it's just right. And so and I it's also a living language, right? That's right. That's right. And <laughs> and punctuations for me, I always feel that they need they need to make the sentence look better. Right. It doesn't really matter what they like, but like, right? There needs to be like, right? There has to be some symmetry. So if there's a comma here, there's a comma here. If there's a, so you're right, a poet, actually. I, but and, and, and I, I speak. I'm very. I'm very lucky. I speak multiple language. Uh, one of the times, somebody who was editing my work uh, for quite some time said to me, like, uh, Iggy, I, so don't take this the wrong way, but I just need to understand: does your punctuation work in any of the languages? <laughs> <laughs> like, is this a an import or is this just like the way you are? And I'm like, I don't think so. I think it's just the way I am. <laughs> so uh, I totally agree with your philosophy. And I have to tell you that there are at least 10 made up words in the book, uh, which were intentionally made up and meant to deceive. So we'll see how good people are at de- discerning I, I'm all, them. I'm into it. That's right. I'm into it. That, could be a, that could be a thing, right? Like, like find... If you if you find all the seven made up words, you get a ninety minute session with George Haas. Right. <laughs> I'd go for that promotion. That'd be cool. Uh, Jimmy used to say to me, "If you're not making up words, you're not really trying." That's right. It's Oscar Wilde, right? Anybody can like write words that everybody knows, right? I'm a virtuoso, right? I remember. But so I guess let's go sort of back a little bit. Like, what made you even re- want to write this book? Well, that's an interesting thing. Um, my dad was a, was very bullying, and uh, I was bullied, and I was really afraid of him. Um, out of proportion, maybe, I don't know. He was very uh, scary. Um, and Abusers tend to be, <laughs> not to be dismissive about it, but like, you know, but abusers, he, sadis, you know, masoch- um, sadistic abusers tend to be scary. And they don't stop. I mean, no, of I, course not. Um, Unfortunately. The last time my dad propositioned me, I was 32. Jesus. Um, and, uh, and he would inappropriately touch me if I made the mistake of getting too close to him all the way into my 30s. I mean, um, and it actually took going to therapy to, dis- to discover that that was inappropriate. I mean, my therapist oh, said, wow. wait a minute, that, that touch is inappropriate. Why are you allowing it? But it had always been there. Uh, and wow. so I didn't recognize it. What? Not, in not all families, they say hello by grabbing your cock? Like, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, he was more of a behind guy. Um, oh, so, got it. Um, so I threw him up against the wall. I put my arm in his neck and I said if you ever touch me again I will fucking beat you to death 
and he smiled, but he never did it again. And so I, I found that to be really wow. a, an interesting experience. But I did notice that in a lot of ways, I was still uh, reacting in my present life, even though he'd been dead, uh, as if I, he was still there to bully me. And so what I wanted to do was to push into that and see whether I could really push through that conditioning around having been so bullied as a kid. And so that's one of the reasons I wrote it. Um, another reason is that um, when I was coming up, so when I was trying to get help for this was in the, in the you know, I... <clears throat> Um, I went to conversion therapy at my dad's request when I was 15, which was not a good experience therapy-wise and also did not have much of an effect. Well, um, the estate should ask for their money back. <laughs> Didn't quite work. Uh, and so uh, when I got to New York um, in 1975, um, um, I started my life there and it seemed to be going well. And then. Um, in the in the spring of 77 my younger brother uh died in a motorcycle accident but it was the third life-threatening accident he'd been in in six months and so i i, I think of it uh, sometimes as a suicide uh, and that really uh, was very uh, difficult to manage and so um i used my main coping strategy which was uh, drinking and using whatever i could get my hands on and um, when i was uh 23, I, I developed cirrhosis of the liver from doing it and was told that if I didn't stop drinking immediately, I would be dead, which I couldn't do and I did eventually get into the 12 step rooms. But if you remember the climate of what was available to uh, people in the early, in the mid 70s, uh, uh, New York was still operating dry dry outs of places you could go in check in and they would lock you in a room literally for 72 hours to detox you that was what was really available at that point I, um, but therapy wise uh, to get somebody to treat you for uh, the kind of experiences that i had um, uh, wasn't really available and also with the the, the dissociation um, DID is a particular way of being in the world and uh, extremely disorienting, uh, particularly when it was as complex as mine was and I was losing time, I was losing days, I, I had relationships with people that I only knew in one part of my mind and not in another part of my mind. Um, couldn't make much progress in conventional uh, treatment and was actually in therapy from 1960 eight until uh, 1993 before I was actually uh, properly diagnosed. It's a long time. So a very long time. Um, and not unusual in, 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 in that community because people are having such a hard time right. recognizing it. And when so I, is there, I think, by the way, no? I mean, I, st I, mean, I think it's, right? I mean, not, not to cut off the thing, I want to go back to what you're saying, but but it seems to me, and I think it's important for people to hear, right, that how still for somebody with your background, right, if we took this as a profile, so finding the right therapist or the right therapy for, right, for this sort of a level of trauma and this associative 
behavior and all that it would still be quite difficult to find the right person to to really not just diagnose but treat uh, carefully yeah we, we I have a student now I'm working with and we've been trying to find uh, room on somebody's calendar to do a, a full assessment for dissociation and uh, you know we're, we're talking about next summer is when they have availability right. uh, so um, I I read the clinical the the there was a in New Haven, Connecticut, there was a woman who was high up in the police department, and because the uh, they were losing in court because the defense for abuse the defense attorneys for the abusers were able to argue that the police officers led the children into the the reports that they had been abused. Um, wrote a handbook on police officers for police officers on how to interview uh, child victims of sexual abuse. And I read it, and it was quite compelling. And so I called her, and I asked her if she knew anybody who might treat somebody who had had those experiences. And she wished me good luck and was very warm, and and I really appreciated it and said, you live in New York City. There are some resources. And she gave me three names. <laughs> Great. I called two of the places and they said, you're male. We don't treat male. In fact, we don't even let men on the property because men, men are all perpetrators. Right, 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 right. And if you had read the textbooks at the time, they would say that even if the, the male was four years old, they were the perpetrator. So I began to work with the, really the only person who was available to me in New York City to work with, uh, Scott Hadley, who has since uh, died. But um, And that was very productive. But he wasn't uh, able to uh, actually accurately understand the, the full extent of the dissociation that I had. It wasn't until I came out to California uh, where I, I was actually... Uh, went into work around that and was able to resolve the dissociation. I am answering your question, though. I haven't forgotten it. Which is, why did I write this book? I wrote this book because I wanted also to, to let people know uh, 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 who have had similar experiences to me that actually there is a way out of this so that, the, that life doesn't have to be so difficult and, and so fruitless in, in the way that uh, uh, many people experience it who have that uh, kind of disadvantage at the beginning. I mean, I, I think for, for me, right, that's that's one of the major things about this. And I think one of the, uh, as usual with you, one of the remarkable things, not just about the intentionality of the book, but how the answer uh, to the question is so different. So dyslexic. What, <laughs> well, yes, but so different in what you think it is, right? So like, because one, not one, like one part of it is this here, right, here, you know, is a is a man, right? Who, right, for all intents and purposes, right, is a really broken man, right? Somebody who went through really some of the most horrific things that we can think about in childhood, right? From right from from being, you know, abused and 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 neglected and and, and all these different things sort of around it, right? To then, right, so like having you know, trauma that's sort of like unrelated to being done to you, right? Like the loss of, you know, of brothers, mentors, lovers, friends, whatever, right? And then, right, so like the the addiction and toxicity of addiction, right? 
to then put on it like, oh, there's all these sort of psychological things that are on me that nobody's really able even to name, let alone treat, until like so many years later when you're like, oh, okay, but by then you have you know mechanisms and all that, right? So on one hand, like this this question, this thing of like, which I find very hopeful, like, wow, here's it. You still you can find relief no matter yes. no matter what you can find relief, right? Right. This is not some like, oh, I didn't get the doll that I wanted as a kid and therefore like my parents <laughs> abused me, right? This is this is true, right, horrific sort of right uh, right terror like sort of abuse and, and neglect and trauma. And here you are, right? Uh for the better part, an adjusted, you know, uh beautiful human being who I'm honored to call my friend. But but so so that's the one thing. And the second thing is like, okay, here's a book. But it's not going to be a therapy book. It's not going to be a how-to book. It's not going to be a mindfulness book. It's not going to be no. a Dharma book. It's not going to be a Buddhist book. This is a book about my thoughts, my poetry, my association, my pictures, my art, my stories. Mm-hmm. Right? This is my narrative. And I find that so powerful, right? To be able to – the therapeutic part is this is my story. This is my narrative. This is my journey. Right. right. I'm not going to give you answers to your journey. I'm going to show you my journey. Right. And and perhaps together we can be in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, good. Right. Which is, which is quite fascinating because I think um, I always try and describe myself, right. As, as a, uh, as a spiritual Sherpa, right. That I, I walk in the back. I'm not the leader. This is not my climb. Right. I don't. Right. But if you if you want to right, hire me, right, for, for lack of a better word, if you want to do this journey with me and, you know, I will carry your shit around. I will tell you if you turn around and ask me a question, I'll give you the answer. But it's your climb, not mine. Right. Yeah. And I find that not since that book is, is kind of the same, I kind of the same thing, which is very powerful. Yes. Thank you. Um, I also think of it as a love poem to the people that uh, I met along the way. One of the things about uh, AIDS, um, which is has some parallels now with COVID, um, is that um, it was defined as hitting this subgroup of homosexuals. When AIDS started, of course, homosexuality was illegal in all 50 states, and it was... Uh, you could be evicted with no consequence. You could be fired with no consequence. You could basically be beaten to death with no consequence. <clears throat> Some would argue you still can. Um, yes, I think that's why we 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 tend to group ourselves in small, in mm-hmm. big cities uh, on either coast. But um, <clears throat> and so. 100,000 people died of AIDS before there was a response from the federal government. Mm-hmm. And uh, the response was uh, through Reagan's press secretary, AIDS is nature's revenge on gay men. Right. Too bad. I remember. Like, right. too bad. Like, oh, you um, caused it yourself. But what I think also happened as a result of that is that. Uh, families were no longer able to hide their gay person, their gay child, right? And when the, the, these upstanding men and women who had gone through the Second World War, who'd done everything right, who believed in the country, who paid their bills, showed up and they were blasted um, uh, uh, as de facto 
gay people for having produced this person uh, that was dying horribly. They found it intolerable. The direct experience that they had, they, they found intolerable. And they couldn't find out, they couldn't find within themselves something that they had done wrong, that they should be deserving of that level of uh, disregard. And so they moved to change it, not necessarily for their gay children, but for the for themselves, because they couldn't make sense out of it. But then you can't make sense out of it, right? It, it, right. it isn't based on that uh, anyway. Um, and so I thought that that was, that was a useful way. It's a, a way of understanding uh, karma, which is so interesting, which is also one of the main huh. themes of the book is, how do you understand karma? As I pose the question in the book, how did I end up in New York, you know, being a, a Midwestern kid who grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, when I did, which was in this amazing time when, um, if you remember the, the late 70s, Carter was president, we were in a massive depression, in, uh, inflation was 15%, uh, you know, it's inflation has been, you know, below one or two percent for so long that we have no concept of what Not that for was long. like. <laughs> <laughs> Not for long. Well, yikes. Uh, yes, what's coming is going to be right. mind-boggling. Um, and so one of the things that made that period in New York so remarkable was that I, you know, I rented a 1,400-square-foot loft on 11th and Broadway for $174 a month. I needed to work two days a week in order to have all the money I needed, and then I could go around to artistic events and, and, and engage in all of that world that was there five days a week, which made this flourishing of the art scene so remarkable at the time. Because my spaces were so cheap and our spaces were all so cheap to live in, nightclub spaces were also super cheap. So you had these giant, thriving, really interesting uh, venues that were, were common because of the climate of the times. And so for a, a brief period, maybe five years, which was the period that the, the Club 57 show covered, uh, New York was this thriving place where artists were mixing with all kinds of uh, different uh, people. New York has that interesting quality where all different kinds of walks of life meet and socialize together, and and it is it isn't so cloistered around what you do. Um, <clears throat> and then I like to say, uh, crack aids and finance took it out. Finance being the most pernicious of the three. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I saw the space that I'd lived in for $174 a month, which was for rent uh, four years ago for $8,500 a month. Yeah. Sure. I was like, I understand before. I don't think that buys me the doorknob. Like, I literally, like, I, right, I, right, when I tell people how much I pay rent in New York, where people are like, I mean, they think I'm crazy. They think, right. literally, they're like, and sometimes I do too. I'm like, I'm I'm burning money. I'm just literally taking money and I'm just burning it. Right. So but but so um it's funny because I I uh I just sort of wrote something and, and created something because we're we're creating a uh LGBTQI 
queer chuva group for for ourselves that's going to mm-hmm. start that's going to start soon and and um so i've been doing some writing and thinking and a lot about sort of like hiv aids and sort of that period sort of you know in in the 80s um and part of like I mean, not to not to be sort of simplistic about it, but sort of like, what are my personal lessons from it? Right. So yes, there's the actual trauma, right? There's the actual, right? So like, I can't think of sex without a a, a an element in my brain that has to do with death, right? Mm-hmm. Or right? Or or disease, right? Everything is fraught, right? Um, I it also I, brings up the trust issue. That's right. That's right. Right. And 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 this vigilance right this this which is which i hate but like right of looking at people and sort of like you know are they healthy enough right are they are they right so like now it's completely thing but like right at the time it was like are they healthy is there lesions right how do they look right so like is is this right so like distended is this like right so like all these sort of like things that sort of you built to yourself to try and protect yourself because when somebody says oh no i'm healthy, whatever you, you're like, yeah, everybody would say that well, you know, right. because we're gay men and we'll say anything to get laid. Right. So like, that's not, <laughs> so, right. But, um, so Hopefully that trauma, not. right. That trust <clears throat> thing. And, and then also about this loss of a whole strata of mentors, this loss of a whole generation of people who were supposed to usher in, right. So the next, generation of gay men who were supposed to sort of like impart wisdom and 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 norms of the society or or right the the queer folk um and how we had to i had to find those up for myself because they're they're just they weren't there no one of the things that was so interesting about it in the beginning of course uh, one of one of my great uh, loves was a, a an Englishman named John Kemp who was a shoe designer, and I was a photographer. And he would do the, he would make these portfolios of shoes, and then I would photograph them, and then he would take my portfolio around uh, the portfolio of my photographs of his shoes to get right. work. And all of those kinds of connections that happen early in life where your creative ability supports somebody else's creative ability and it creates these things that then happen, none of that happened. So the, 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 the vo- all of those voices that would have then um, moved through uh, and affected a, a great swath of our understanding of, of life didn't happen because of that. Um, You know, at, at that time, which I, I do talk about in the book, is uh, if you got a diagnosis of AIDS, you started the process of ending your life because it was fatal. That's right. It was it was it was it was a done deal, and it was fatal within a year usually. And so the um, and then after two or three or four or five people dying on you, it, it became very difficult to really be willing to be intimate with people and get really connected to them because uh, the losses were so uh, painful. There was no support from society uh, at all. And so we had to support each other in the dying process with the resources that we had. The gay community is just uh, inherently less resource because of the prejudice against 
right. and um, restricts uh, financial uh, possibilities for so many people. And um, so it was a just a really harrowing time. And in that sense, I think, right, interestingly, right, because I think as a community, right, and, and definitely I know it was for me in that sort of later period, the self-imposed disassociative element, right? I don't want to feel, right? right? I don't want, like, right, it's like, you know, six weeks that I'm at a funeral every weekend, right? I don't want to feel anymore. So, of course, I'm going to drink or drugs or, se- like, right? So, like, I was like, who wants to live in this world when I'm constantly reminded of like how everything I love can die, how everything dies around me, how everybody hates me, right? How <laughs> somehow, right? So somehow nature is like given me this disease, right? To be fearful of. And then, you know, this sucks. I don't want this. <laughs> One of the things that was true then, which I'm really hoping it's not as true now is that, if you came out, you were you were ostracized from your family and your original friend group, and it, right. that was very common. One of the things about the culture in New York City at that time, which was so remarkable, was it filled up with all of these people who had been completely cut off from the yeah. place they came, and so there was the freedom to create this uh, new right. social structure that hadn't really existed before. There was a lot of conversation about, well, I, I actually am not tied to anybody uh, where I came from because they've all uh, ostracized me. That's right. And so I can I can move into a place of um, more authenticity in that in the expression of uh, of who I am and, and what is interesting to me. And that also I thought was uh, very enlivening at the time. Yeah, and I think we're part of the, the artistic process, right? Sort of part of the... Uh, our process is to redefine ourselves, right? From from ballroom culture to houses to right to to right to to this sort of uh, families of understanding, as I, as I call it, right? So like mm-hmm. to create this sort of new uh, new structures around me. That sort of that I I don't have to call my aunt Rose for Rosh Hashanah, right? I can do. <laughs> I can call call my aunt Rose. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. I can be Aunt Rose. <laughs> Right. Um, so, right, taking all this, taking all this, right, and and again, in sort of this sort of uh, rather fantastical way of of integrating into the person that you are today, right, is because right within that description is right. This is a reflection from today about then, right. This is right. not just a a walk down memory lane of this is what I was thinking, but this is what I'm thinking, and this is how I'm seeing now, right, from from your own space of right of uh, a Buddhist or a Buddhism teacher, right, a Dharma teacher, a, a somebody who has devoted uh, his life to meta, right, to sort of to this to this really big gift, right, of of compassion and um, and understanding. Um, are there things today that you think about from from writing the book or from within the youth that you that have changed and all of a sudden be like, Oh, I, I see this completely different now. Or, or is this just a, like a retelling of a story you've carried on for a while? Well, it has uh, been um, useful in understanding karma in a way um, that I, at a deeper level than I had before. Um, In each moment, of course, all of the possibilities that you can choose are there. 
if you can see them all, then you have this amazing array of, of choices that you can make. But most of the time, we become so habituated to the, the habit of the way that we are, we really see very few of the possibilities that are available to us. And then we choose them, of course, each time you make a choice in an action, all of the other possibilities fall away and you just have the outcome of that action. And then if you've intended something and, and, and are attached to the outcome of it, what happens can be disappointing or it can be elating based on how well it matches your uh, hope of what would happen, which also closes down the possibility of understanding that what happened is this uh, karmic force that then opens and a whole range of new possibilities that you could choose from. And so we can sometimes go through life thinking we're not getting what we want, or sometimes go through life and think we're getting what we want, but it actually uh, doesn't uh, accurately describe the process of moving through life and the choices and the outcomes that happen without that sense of being open. Um, is, is that how you define karma? Is that how... Um, I think that karma uh, is this process of moving from a choice to choice and that the, the next set of choices that come to you are, are based on the choice that you just made, which is based on the choice that you made before that. So it's this flow through uh, potentialities and choosing and pen potentialities and choosing. You can get into a vicious cycle where the potentialities are all getting more and more dire you can get into a virtuous uh, cycle where they're they're getting better and better, but are they better because you like them better, or are they better because the outcome is better? Um, we like to create these narratives uh, about that explain that process to us, but they're always written from the perspective looking back. They're, they're not. There's no way to know what the outcome of the future is going to be. We we really don't have the capacity to to calculate that well enough to know. And so we all have these re reverse engineered narratives about what happened. And so what I thought was interesting about this was, how did I actually end up in, in that place at that time and in exactly that moment to encounter the people that I encountered and the effects that then the engagement of, of being involved with them had on the, the trajectory of my life and, and where was the beginning of it? And so going all the way back and um, and then trying to then assemble a way of describing that in a narrative um, that included my dissatisfaction of thinking that I didn't get what I want, even though the thing that I did got, get led me to the places later in life that were extraordinary and I so value, right? Even though I could tell you that at the time it was uh, terrible right. to quote Morrissey, <laughs> I could laugh about it now, but at the time it was terrible. No, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> is is reflection right here? Sort of like for the for the book rather, but also for the Dharma teacher. Is reflection an essential tool of of uh, of karma or, or or of of the dharma in that sense, right? Is is reflection necessary or right? Because because karma just is, right? So dharma just is, right? In that sense, right? So you are almost inconsequential to to it, right? So like, but but is reflection important? 
Well, one meaning of the word vipassana and vipassana meditation is what we do is to recollect right. or, or to reflect backwards, uh, to understand the trajectory forward. Um, you know, in tra traditional Buddhism, your personal karma is affected by all of your lives, which have been in the limitless thousands. So to, to begin no, to understand. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can't predict the outcome. So you have right. to have an ethical intention and then take the action that seems the most skillful and then see what happens. But what really begins to, to um, happen when you get into, uh, I think, a deeper understanding of that uh, process is that you take in the data, you make a determination through your ethical system, you take the most skillful action you can, and then you wait with surprise at what happens. And then you repeat the process. And the better you get at it, of course, you're just happy to be surprised by whatever happens. You don't get attached to the thing that you wanted to have happen. And you don't devalue what happens because it isn't that because you don't know where that will take you that you couldn't have thought of ahead of time. It may actually get you closer to the thing that you want in three or four choices that your limited ability to comprehend what was happening now uh, and what you thought had to happen in order to get there was actually not even true. Uh, and so you it's this opening and opening and opening and opening until you're just in this flow of experience moving as ethically as and skillfully as you can from moment to moment it's 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 interesting because right for me right what it sounds like a lot is uh part of what i'm teaching in terms of jewish life is this uh need and this tool for wonder right to constantly be at awe of what happening of creation and not just from a personal thing like oh this is happening to me but like this is happening, right? right? And and when you are able to have this awe, that you have a lot, a lot, a life that's a lot richer and more full of meaning. And in many ways, I think that because talking about sort of like abuse and and children, right? Like when when kids get traumatized, or even young adult or adults get traumatized, right? That's one of the things that you've taken away, right? You've created a correlation between. Right, sort of like the the I don't know the the speaking too loud and getting slapped in the face or whatever, right? And then so there's no awe anymore, right? Things right. become, as you said, transactional. Things become like pretty much, I know, right? He drinks this, this will happen. I'll say something, you'll hit me, right? So like or whatever it is, right? Or or right? Or I'll show this piece of art that I've made to my mother, and she'll say like, oh, this is stupid, right? Or like whatever it is, um, right? <laughs> Um, just, just as a few examples. Remembering conversations with my mother. <laughs> exactly. Right. No, right. Because it's funny, right? Because one of the things that connects us, although my parents were not, uh, as I hate to say this, as bad as in that sense as, as what you're describing, right? My father was, my father loved his belt, you know. And when we didn't behave, that was the acceptable way to tell us that sort of like he is very dissatisfied with us, right? right. My grandmother. My grandmother, when I, uh, my paternal grandmother, his mother, right, when when we were not behaved to her satisfaction, right, she would lock me in the bathroom, right, and this is right, and, and it was just the the bathroom part, not the whole 
right right and she would lock me there for the night just you know so so i understand that sort of that sort of thing right so there was no there was no wonder <laughs> right right there was only uh, preoccupation and fear that's right that's mm-hmm. right and i think part of what dharma karma buddhism Judaism, or a lot of spiritual traditions are designed is to uh make us more prone or at least sort of open up a possibility of of this wonder of this connection mm-hmm. to a much larger universe one of the things I talk about in the book is the, the that natural innocence of the child was not destroyed. It was buried under right. their shit, right. but it wasn't destroyed. Yeah, and uh, and that you could dig it out, and then you you have that basis of the natural innocence of the child that provides that wonder at the discovery of things that are new, and then this joyful energy to go out and look for them which if you can get out from under that pile of their bullshit uh, is available again. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I absolutely love that because, right, sort of what we're named after, right, sort of the Chuva Center, right? Chuva means repent, right? Uh, it means uh, also response, uh, but it also means to return. And this return right, is uh, uh, this sort of, uh, I, I read a long time ago when I was doing some biblical studies um, that were to return to the original shape of man. Mm. That is that return, right, that that innocent child, that that loving child, the artistic child, whatever it is, right, the, the process of tshuva, right, brings back that, it uncovers that child or that young adult, whatever. Right? How were you before? Uh, before you learned that you're not worth anything. Before somebody, right. taught, you know. Before somebody didn't value you. That's right. Not, and, and you took it as as your value. Yeah. You just said right, like this sort of right. We talked about uh, the the ethical intention. Um. Presumably, right? Because uh, I know it's been, there are moments where I did not have the most ethical intention. Right when I did things that I didn't, that I knew even then, and definitely know now that I wasn't coming from an, uh, a positive ethical intention. Like when one looks at, like, right when you wrote the book, or when you look at things, like how do we, how do we deal with that, both with the shame and the guilt, but how do we then un, right, unravel this sort of karmic seed that undoubtedly, right, will come back and bite us in the ass, and not in a good way. Do you remember the scene at the end of Some Like It Hot? Jack Lemon is sitting there. Joey Brown is sitting there. Jack Lemon pulls off the wig and says, I'm a man. <laughs> and Joey Brown says, nobody's perfect. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Truth, right? Um, the uh, <clears throat> I think they're, they're like fish hooks. That's how I experience them. I'm going along. My consciousness is great. And then all of a sudden, I'm hooked by this fish hook it's very painful in that moment re- recollecting some boneheaded move that i made because i was so mad or so uh, craving wanting something um i you know in particular with my older brother i have a lot of those um you know i could provoke him into hitting me and then he would be punished uh those kinds of things right. um 
uh, I remembered actually, uh, I last night I dreamt that my brother, my younger brother, who I adored, would would spend endless hours meticulously making these models. Like he made a model of a tank. And I just came in and I flipped the switch and it rolled itself off the desk and fell on the floor and broke. And that was still painful. So we have this practice of forgiveness where you forgive yourself for doing it. And then if you need to uh, uh, address it, make amends that are meaningful to the person who you harmed, uh, it seems uh, practically impossible to not in some ways lose mindfulness and get caught up in the in the in the mental uh, mishigas and then Look suddenly at you, <laughs> i lived in new york for six i know years. i know and I'm, like, I'm, like, I'm still like like oh <laughs> some words they're just no better right that's true uh, um you got swept into the content of the distortion and then your ethical stance is lost and the intention that you're making is coming from that distortion and then you put it into action and then the karma unfolds from that. Um, You know, one of the things we like to say is, oh, another moment of mindlessness. I'm so sorry, please forgive me. Uh, it turns out that if you do that right away, people have no problem forgiving you. If you let it go for a couple of weeks, it's hardened and it's much harder to fix. So you want to, as soon as you come back into mindfulness and as soon as you're back in your right mind, be constantly evaluating whether your actions were skillful or not. And if you decide that they weren't, to immediately attempt to repair it. Mm particularly with the people who are close to you because you need them. They're valuable to you and you need to protect them. Right. And, and I mean, and, and, and yourself, right. So like, and sort of, it's not just right. Well, yes, Um, this incident with the model tank happened in, you know, the early (laughs) sixties, I'm still carrying it around. But you know what you what you describe, of course, it, it sounds like a tenth step, right? It sounds like right, sort of, right, right. This very right. So like right, we, but we continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, to promptly admit them, right? So like right. that that that's very and, and adding that um, and making actual amends, <clears throat> right? Um, is there a difference between? A Buddhist amends and an AA amends, or the way you see it, like is is there are all amends created equally? <laughs> um, uh, the way that I kind of think of it is, um, and I realize that that's passive speech, uh, is you need to take care of the person in a way that's meaningful to them, not in a way that's meaningful to you. So if you're actually making amends to somebody, if you're actually apologizing for somebody, you're doing it in a way that's meaningful to them. And they're the arbiters of whether you're doing it right or whether you've done it enough, uh, that they feel uh, the relationship is repaired. We often have this uh, um, sense that I did the apology uh, that would have been meaningful to me if somebody had done it to me, that it doesn't mean anything to you is 
your problem, not a problem with how I did it. Um, so in, uh, that would be the the, the uh, evaluation. In Buddhism, and it sounds like just like in Judaism, right? So that. Yes, well, it is responsible for you to make the amends and the apology. It is the responsibility of the person receiving it to also make it as easy and as open as possible to receive the amends, right? To sort of treat it with compassion, to sort of, right? So in Judaism, for example, if you've done something and you've asked forgiveness, you've, got, you've done an amends, uh, the first time they can say no, the second time they can hold resentment and said no, but the third time, if they don't, that's it. Sort of in that sense, the quote unquote sin is on them, not the perpetrator. So like you've done all you can do, now you can move on. Right. So um well I, I would say right, I would say like right, if you're if you're the one owed the apology, right, you should treat it with it with compassion the same way you would the rest of the world, right? Holding on to the resentment would be, uh, would be um, well. It would be harmful to yourself correct. to do that. But there are some things that people can do that are un unforgivable, and I don't mean that there's a a list of unforgivable right. acts. I mean that there's things that people can do that then rupture the epistemic trust in a way that you can't repair it. Right. That you don't trust them anymore. Uh, that's the category of unforgivable. You're not relieved of your obligation to be compassionate. You're not relieved of right. your obligation to karma. But people can break relationships that become unrepairable. And then you withdraw from the relationship because right. that's so, actually right. what's happening. So, But at that point, in that point right, the thing is that then you have to withdraw. You can't stay in the relationship while holding on to that. Right. Right. If you stay in a the relationship, then that would be harmful to you and to them. And it's not authentic then, right? Something, something must not be true. You either are really, it really is then either forgivable or. Or right? it's not. Or it's and not. that you have to acknowledge. Right. So. Um, and I think this is actually pretty, pretty useful for people who have had histories of abuse. Yeah. Sometimes the conduct of the abuser is unforgivable. And. If there's a succession of them, they become irredeemable. And then you, you don't need to put effort into putting yourself in, in proximity to being further harmed um, by trying to repair and maintain that relationship. It's actually better to withdraw from it. Right. That isn't without its own sense of loss because you haven't, in fact, lost the relationship. But if the capacity to enter into a, a, a place of epistemic trust with the person isn't present, then actually you can't have much of a relationship with them, right. whether you want it or not. And I don't know about you, but I haven't been able to force trust. It develops through experience of how the other person relates. Right. No, for sure. <laughs> Me neither. I wouldn't <laughs> trust either. <laughs> Um, you know, you give somebody a little bit of of, <laughs> of, of trust to see how they do with it. But that also, good, yes, but that also makes me feel uncomfortable sometimes, right? Because it's yeah. almost like a test. I don't want to test people, right? I don't want to lead, right? I don't want to like, 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 you know, like be vigilant about like, oh, well, you know, like I would like well, to, and again, I'm not perfect, but I would like to just like either trust or not. 
Well, I, 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 I totally think that the vigilance is not useful, but I, I, I think you give somebody trust and see how they do with it. Right. They do well, then you give them a little bit more. And then over time, there's a greater capacity to trust them, but it's based on actual experience of how they do, not based on your idea of them or, or a wish that they would do better. Does uh, I, I think we think, but I, right, you, your father is is now dead, right? It's deceased. He right? is. It's it's one of the only good things I can say about him. <laughs> right, we've said, right, we said, right, so like <laughs> quoting quoting uh, uh, Betty Davis, right, when you heard about uh, when you heard about John Crawford, her nemesis dying, right? The the apocryphal says, right, the sort of the reporter calls and says, you know, oh, you know, Miss Crawford, Betty Davis died. Uh, you have a comment, and she says, "My mother always taught me to speak good of the dead." Right? Joan is dead. Good. <laughs> right, one of my favorite stories. Um, so my died. My 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 dad died relatively recently, right? Um, and now I have this uh, this tension in me. Right of the 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 parts that were not great in our relationship, right, versus my need to let go, right, and, and especially now with death, right. So like that's it. There's no there's no reconciliation of the things that sort of they were done in that space and time that sort of we could discuss anymore. Um, does death change the relationship we have with those things? Do you find that? for you you know my dad was um sadistic and he was planning and uh and he some of these uh these uh um betrayals were complex and happened over periods of time and so actually the fearfulness of my dad got worse when he died because i thought he might have put something into play that i would then have to encounter and so it took actually quite a long time for me to relax about that because it didn't happen. Right. So his uh, his his sadism would, would would be triggered by his right. He, he planned his death so that somehow you'd be hurt. Yeah, I would put have, have put into motion something right. that would have been painful as the last you know gesture of his right. dominance. Um, I don't know. Uh, most of the time when I talk about this, if you don't have a, a history of being bullied, it, it might not make as much sense as it does. But if you have had a history of being bullied, it makes complete sense. The, no, the, I know. The it, it, it's, it's very dark, right? It's very yeah. dark and it's very. Um... Okay, so, so if, right, so if he's now reincarnated, what is he reincarnated as? Ah. Um... <laughs> so I went to Myanmar. <clears throat> And the tallest standing Buddha in the world is in Myanmar. Mm -hmm. And um, there's 31 levels, right? The hell right. realms and the animal right. realms, the human realms, the heavenly realms, the right. um, Brahma realms. And on the particular day we went, the what you normally do is take the elevator to the 31st floor, and start at the down, highest, right? and walk down. But on the day we went, it was broken. Ooh. And so we thought, oh, well, we'll walk up. And we walked. We started walking up 31 floors. This is in the tropics in the summer. It was like I, unbelievable. I, this is a stupid decision. I like. I can tell. Like, but, I would have been like, okay, where's the coffee shop? Like, okay, you know. 
So the bottom five levels are hell realms, and there are all these graphic depictions of them. And I kept seeing my father in them. <laughs> oh, wow. So he's trapped <laughs> then, in the Buddha in the Miramar? Uh, then we got to the uh, animal realm, and that was very sort of Bambi-esque. And then we got to the human realm, and then we decided that was enough for this lifetime and went down. <laughs> So he's 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 trapped in the hell of the on a on a on a wall in in Myanmar. I, I have a hard time with this because it, it I can't imagine it. But what would his childhood experience have been like so that the kinds of things that he did to me made sense to him? It must have been uh, as bad, and so I have that natural sense of compassion for him. And what must have happened to him in order for him to be somebody who would do that? Um, but at the same time, he he was never apologetic. Uh, he was never uh, interested in reconciliation. He was only interested in protecting his reputation. And if that meant destroying me, he was totally happy to do it. And so, how do you hold that contradiction of somebody who's supposed to be your father and guide you? Uh, through childhood into your adult life so that you can thrive in the the natural innocence of yourself and what what's meaningful and that unique perspective that comes from 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 being you and to have somebody fail so completely at that uh, task um, it's it, it's a it's a lot to hold in terms of an idea of somebody does the book help um, telling you a story, showing your creativity, being successful—does that help? Um, is a good life is a good life the best revenge, quote unquote? Um, you know, I, I think that um, really the thing that propels us is meaning. What is Great. meaningful? And so, all of those conditions, all of those experiences affect the kind of meaning and the valuations of meaning that you have and can you get to the place where you uh, pulled around yourself a, a social support group uh, that delights in you the way that you are that you're free to be completely authentic with and who delights in that um, you know I, I grew up in a there was no delight of me in my childhood um, I was a, an embarrassment to them. Um, and I every time I went into the room, I could feel their embarrassment. It was a terrible condition. And it made me extremely closed off and inhibited. And how do you overcome that? Um, and the way that you do, of course, is you put around yourself people who delight in the way that you are and are encouraging of that authentic expression because they find it beautiful and they want more of it. And that begins to open up the possibility of exploring things that really have meaning just to you, uh, even if they don't have a lot of value in our society. For instance, I, 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 I teach meditation. I really value it, but it has very little value in our society. <laughs> For the most part, unfortunately. I like to make the the crazy pictures I like to make. And they mean a lot to me, and I'm really excited to put them out into the world. But it, it, it you know, as an experimental artist rather than a branded one, uh, 
I don't know. But, but in that sense, right, I delight in them and I delight I, in you and I delight in your teachings and I delight in our interactions and our friendship and, right, sort of like I, I delight in the, in this sort of like juxtaposition, right, sort of like element of your, uh, right, of your existence, which is so part of and so close to me in that sense, sort of mm-hmm. that like, right, here's a person who, um, uh, really is 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 like i keep saying like part of these tensions and the meaning that we make of these tensions right right to be a mindfulness and 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 meditation buddhist dharma right so like practitioner and teacher and an artist and you know but also have all these different parts of us that sort of that we can bring to the forefront without this either shame or guilt but really as a way to express ourselves that this is mm-hmm. who i am you know and as you said, it has meaning to me. So if you delight in it, great. But if not, it still has meaning to me. <laughs> it still does. <laughs> okay. So 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 that that's really great. You, which is, I love you. Keep going. That's uh, right. That's right. Say more. <laughs> right. Say more about this because I love this. Right. So it has four meanings. One is, I love you. Keep going. It's an internal mantra to get yourself going. And I love you. Keep going. Which you say to to someone that you love as a way of encouraging them. And then it's, I love you, keep going to the people that you would like out of your life. <laughs> and then I love you, keep going to somebody you're engaged in a neurotic encounter with who's doing a good job. So that's the four meanings of it. I love it. I love, I love it. <laughs> and in that sense, right? I love you. Keep going. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. Keep at it. Absolutely. I love that keep you're here. It. And I love what you're doing. And I'm so happy that you're part of this uh, path that I'm on. Absolutely. So, so right for everybody, again, I mean, if you go to metagroup.org, you can find a lot about what George is doing and teaching and, and, you know, and all that that entails. And of course, this rather significant sort of uh, significant book, right? So like this really beautiful uh, memoir, inspirational, uh, almost, I would say, sort of like, you know, mindfulness book that sort of, mm-hmm. uh, that really is combining a lot of the ways that sort of people can think about themselves and others in the world and also learn a couple of things, especially uh, any LGBTQI people listening to this. <laughs> this is this is our education. This is what we learn from our, forgive me, from our elders, right? The Lower Manhattan Dormitory Effect. Uh, it's on Amazon and I'm sure other bookstores all around. Um George, thank you so much. This has yeah. been really, really, truly fascinating. And thank and, you for having and, me. And, and great as always. Uh, last word for people, right? Anything you want to <clears throat> last lesson? Yes. In keeping with our culture, it's also a, a tell all on famous people. Ooh, <laughs> that's a good ending. That's a good ending. I like that. There's some secrets and nuggets there. Page six. I love it. See? Like right, don't think that us spiritual people have no mischief in our right, in totally. our laugh or in our eye. George, again, thank you, thank you everybody right. for joining us. Thank you uh, for joining us at the Tattoos and Torah of the Chuba Center. We'll be back next week. Thank you so much. All right. Bye.